Ding, 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 ding. Welcome to Talking Pictures Trivia, the podcast in which a group of Welcome to Talking Pictures Trivia, the podcast in which a group of The podcast in which a group of The podcast in which a group of B-Side. Welcome back to B-Side. This is Tom here. And today we're going to go back into Afterlife, the movie we had covered a couple weeks ago. We had a discussion at the end of our podcast yesterday. We recorded it. Um, I'm not quite sure exactly when all of these are being released, uh, but it was the podcast on the Shaun of the Dead film. And at the end, we again brought up the concept of purgatory and how it relates in different religions and how it relates to the film Afterlife, and is Afterlife a type of purgatory or a type of way station or both or something different? And Nick and I especially had some solid disagreements on this. We had continued talking after the podcast stopped and some of the recording had been captured and KJ cut it up into approximate nine minute long B-side. And I just wanted to comment on the idea of purgatory on that B side, and then you know some ideas that I've looked at, uh, some research I've done to see kind of where afterlife sits, its depiction of the afterlife sits, that is, in relation to these other concepts of purgatory from other religions. And I want to start as a, a guiding frame for this podcast, the work of Jerry Walls. And Jerry Walls has a book titled Purgatory, The Logic of Total Transformation. And so this is what uh, this is what Walls says. He says, purgatory is not necessarily in scripture and that this is argued, but what's important about it and why it comes to exist in so many religions is that it's a logical extension of belief. He sees Walls's uh, a contrast between the satisfaction model and the sanctification model. And what we see that is the satisfaction model looks to satisfy God's notion of judgment. And the sanctification model of purgatory is used to regain one's spiritual health. So to to go over that again, purgatory comes from a logical need, not necessarily from revelation. The logical need is if you are going to die and go on into some afterlife, and there is a judging divine figure, God, gods, whomever, and they require you to behave in a certain way, then you, those people who have failed to behave in that way are going to run into a problem. And so purgatory is a logical means of answering that problem. And so religions answer it in two ways. Either they say it's for satisfaction, that is, um, God needs to be satisfied, he, you need to be judged and uh, satisfy God's demands on you, right? So if you failed to live up to the expectation, let's say you were particularly avarice, and being avarice, you failed God's mandate. And therefore, you need to go through purgatory in order to satisfy God. 
The other model is sanctification, as I said before, and that's where you are kind of cleansed, you're purified, you're able to regain spiritual health, consequently. Um, Wells is particularly talking about Catholic and Protestant notions of these things, which we're going to explore, but of course we're also going to go eastward to look at religions there. And what we see with with Wells is that he says the Catholics are really swinging between the satisfaction and the sanctification models, while the Protestants um, see the sanctification model as being the model, right? They're not really interested in, in God um, being satisfied. God doesn't seem to need to be satisfied in, in a lot of Protestant worldviews, but rather that you need to be purified and made ready. Okay, so to start, let's actually take a look at the concise Oxford Dictionary of the Christian Church and their definition of purgatory. This is going to be extended definition. I'm going to try and read all of it. Purgatory, belief that sins can be purged in afterlife and that the process can be accelerated by prayer is expressed in the, the Passion of Saints, Perpetua and Felicity, from 2003 A.D. And St. Gregory the Great specifically taught that light sins will be purged in purgatorial fire. Scripture passages allude to in support of this teaching include, and then they list a, a collection of teachings, um, a, a collection of scripture passages. In the late 12th century, the elaboration of the theology of penance helped to fashion the idea of purgatory as a place where penances unfinished in this world could be completed. St. Thomas Aquinas taught that in purgatory, any unforgiven guilt, culpa, of venal sin is expiated, and any punishment, poena, for sins, both venal and moral, still remaining at death, is borne and that the smallest pain in purgatory is greater than the greatest on earth, but is relieved by the certitude of salvation, which establishes the holy souls in deep peace. Moreover, they may be helped by the prayers of the living. And my own editorial here, the idea of the prayers of the living is extremely important, as, as we'll see with the Protestant Reformation. The teaching of the church was defined at the Council of Lyons in 1274 and Florence in 1439 in the hopes of reconciling the Greeks who objected to various aspects. It provided a context for the development of indulgences. And so um, in hopes of reconciling the Greeks, I, I believe that's a reference to the, the split between the Eastern and Western Catholic churches. The latter part, the establishment of indulgences becomes very important for, let's say that again, the establishment of indulgences is very important for our understanding of purgatory, especially the Catholic understanding of purgatory, because it means that the location of souls that is in purgatory or in heaven is dependent on, in part, the behavior of people on earth. Therefore, purgatory allows 
indulgences to take place. It's kind of the logical framework for indulgences. And indulgences, for, for those people who don't know, is when you donate money to the church, effectively pay to help someone get out of purgatory. So you're lessening the amount of years they will spend there by giving money. And so you could see that this opens the door for corruption and becomes a major criticism that Martin Luther levels against the Catholic Church. Here we see with the, the Council of Trent, which was summoned by Pope Paul III in 1537, the Council of Trent goes on to confirm the existence of pur purgatory. Um, this is a response to the denial by Martin Luther, who says that you can't pay to get people out of purgatory. And then he throws doubt upon purgatory, and eventually he dismisses purgatory altogether. And the followers of the Protestant worldview dismiss purgatory outright. And the Council of Trent of 1537 responds to that. It's basically saying, yes, um, purgatory is confirmed. Uh, and this is a big event in the Counter-Reformation, that is the movement back against Luther. And so the nature of purgatory becomes one of the big fights in the Protestant v. Catholic battle. Now, when we skip ahead many, many hundreds of years and get to Vatican II in the early 1960s, purgatory comes up again. And in terms of that that council, the most important document is the um, Lumen Gentium. And in that document, we see a stress on eschatology as inaugurated by Christ and continuing on in the present church. Eschatology is the study of either the end times or the study of death, the study of the end, be it the end of the world, as seen in the book of Revelations, or an individual's end, an individual's death. So the church, according to Lumen Gentium, Gentium, excuse me, is no longer reporting on the afterlife, but the point of the church is a focus on the afterlife, that the church, in fact, has to or helps to get you to heaven. So the, the church, the, the idea of the afterlife, the idea of living towards the end, ends up being embodied in the church. And Vatican II confirms this. This is something they, they say is the point of the church. This then reaffirms the point of purgatory you know, that purgatory is, is in existence, it is real, and the point of purgatory is this, to go back to, to the walls model, the point then is satisfaction of, of God, right? The, to satisfy God so that you can be purified, go to heaven. Now, if we jump even further ahead to 1992, the most important document that arises, that has arisen since Vatican II is the Catechism of the Catholic Church, the CCC. This was established in 1992. And in Article 1 of the CCC, the Catechism, again, like in Vatican II, reaffirms the existence of purgatory, which is described as, quote, now I'm quoting from the CCC, the final purification of the elect, 
which is entirely different from the punishment of the damned. End quote. And we could see here, this now is a move in Catholicism to the sanctification model for going away from um, justification in God to the sanctification model that we're no longer seeing purgatory as damnation, as a form of damnation, as, you know, whatever, hell light or hell temporary, but now it's becoming something which allows us to uh, see God, see the face of God. Now I want to move into sort of Catholic aesthetic views of purgatory, and this is mostly predicated upon the work of Dante and the, the middle part of his divine comedy, the Purgatorio. And I want to start with an excerpt from uh, a different reference guide. This is the Oxford Handbook of Eschatology, and this passage is by Paul J. Griffiths. And here's his definition of purgatory. And again, it's an extended quote. quote. The English word purgatory is a technical term belonging to Christian doctrine. As such, it translates the Latin purgatorium and means place of purification. Just as the referegrium is the place in which you're cooled off after a hot bath, so the purgatorium is the place in which you're purged after overindulgence, the place that is in which whatever impurities you suffer are removed. End quote. To say again about the, the walls model, again, we have that kind of uh, swing in Catholicism between punishment and purification. Back to Griffiths, quote, In its most general Christian doctrinal sense, the word denotes a place or condition or state entered at death, remained in for a time, and then left for heaven. Those who enter purgatory are certain of heaven, for the only exit from it leads directly there, and purgatory is, by definition, temporary. A sojourn in purgatory purifies those who undergo it from whatever separates them from the love of God, and they leave it when that has been achieved. End quote. So, just to explain that, I, I bungled it a little bit, is that purgatory erodes whatever is separating you from God. So if it's pride, it flushes away pride, and then you're close to God. You're with God. You're one with God. Back to Griffiths again. Quote, Purgatory's inhabitants, then, are in an intermediate state between death and heaven. They are in heaven's antechamber, like the bride in her dressing room preparing for the marriage bed. They are preparing for eternal loving intimacy with God, end quote. Okay, so we have here the kind of bare bones, what, what Griffiths later refers to as the bare bones concept of purgatory. Bare bones because the point of purgatory seems to swing between purification and punishment. It seems to be lean more upon purification. I mean, the word, the Latin word, literally translates to place of purification. But it isn't entirely clear what's it doing or how it's operating, right? That we still get this intermediate state. And so what Griffiths argues is that this, the bare bones nature of purgatory um, does include pain, torture, etc. Um, 
Excuse me, my bad. The bare bones concept of purgatory doesn't include pain, torture, etc. Uh, it's it's just an antechamber to heaven. And so to get back to my debate with Nick, um, here's a few points for Nick. It seems like Nick has a, a pretty solid argument of afterlife representing purgatory. It's an antechamber to heaven. I don't know if we can call what's going on with the recently deceased a form of purification, but the bare bones definition of purgatory, at least according to Griffiths, is closer to the vision we have in afterlife than, let's say, the um, purgatorial mountain of Dante, which we're going to get into next. What Dante does, and so let's let's back up here. Dante, we know who he is. He's a poet, the most famous Italian poet, and his most famous work, his, his crowning achievement is the Divine Comedy. And the Divine Comedy is about Dante first following Virgil, then following Beatrice into hell, purgatory, and heaven. The Inferno, the Purgatorio, and the Paradiso. Obviously, the Purgatory is the middle ground. And in the Purgatory, Dante represents the, the Purgatorial space as a mountain in the Southern Hemisphere. The Purgatorial mountain is, I think, in the opposite direction of Jerusalem. So it's kind of the, the antipod to, to Jerusalem. And the, uh, it links earth to heaven. You would climb the purgatorial mountain, being forgiven of your sins as you go in order to get to heaven. There's seven layers, each representing a deadly sin. People have to pass through each layer and people have to spend time purifying themselves as they go through each layer. So for example, this I brought up in the podcast, uh, pride, the particular punishment for pride is you have to carry around a heavy rock on your back for an extended period of time. And in some cases, this could be very long. There was, there's one example, I don't remember the name of the person in the Purgatorio who has to endure one of these punishments for, I think, about 300 years. Um, and so it's not, not wonderful, but it is escapable, which is very important. Um, and Dante sees pride as the the sin he's going to have to, to suffer at the most. Um, he, apparently, he was a very proud man, um, justifiably, I would say. But anyway, so each layer represents a deadly sin that you have to purge yourself of, purify yourself of. Um, so we could see Griffith's point that our imagining of purgatory isn't necessarily derived from scripture, but more probably derived from Dante. The, the scriptural evidence of purgatory is there, he would argue, and, and he puts it out there. I was going to go through it, but I don't think I am, just in the interest of time. But the, the point that Griffiths wants us to take away um, is that the idea of this, this punishment, right, is really an aesthetic brought to the kind of theological bare bones and placed upon the bare bones of the theology. Uh, and this is something that the Catholic Church doesn't expressly deny until it looks like the CCC. That's 1992. So Dante had a profound effect on the religious imagination of Catholics. Now I want to turn to, to Protestantism. We all know Protestantism is a, uh, 
a phenomenon in which many Catholics kind of turned against Rome and established their own Christian religions, usually based upon um, faith alone, so not upon good works, as would be the case in the Catholic tradition, but based upon faith alone, and Protestantism was very diverse. The most famous example of kind of breaking from the Catholic Church is probably obviously Henry VIII, who established the Church of England, the Anglican Church, in order to, let's just say, have control, have a little more control over his realm um, and his personal life as well. But anyway, the most important figure in Protestantism, obviously Martin Luther, um, who really did split from the church quite aggressively. And he sees purgatory as something that is evil and something to be dismissed. Now, in his small called articles, and I have no idea if I'm pronouncing that right, but those are some articles he had written outlining his beliefs, uh, and they were published in 1537. In these articles, he says that purgatory's connection with commerce, that is the, the paying of indulgences, which we covered before, is what makes it evil. He does not know if we should pray for the dead, as that scripture gives us no information on if this is good, bad, or useless, but that instead we should stop trying to buy people out of purgatory. Right? And so that ends up becoming a big problem for the Protestants, is this connection between the belief in purgatory and paying off bishops, right? Allowing bishops, priests, other religious figures to collect big sums of money in order to, quote unquote, relieve your relatives of suffering in purgatory. Now, in the Book of Common Prayer, the Book of Common Prayer was the, the articles of belief associated with the Anglican Church. Um, it comes out, I think, after Henry VIII, or rather it's established and written, I think, in the era of Henry VIII and becomes widely distributed under his daughter, Elizabeth I. But the Book of Common Prayer is composed of 39 articles. Um, these are the defining statements of the Church of England. Um, it lambasts purgatory in Article 22, and it says quite explicitly that, explicitly rather, that purgatory does not exist and it should not be accepted. Okay. And we can see this attitude moving further on. When we get to kind of religious dissenters and people who are, um, let's say, opposing the High Church of England, and these are not Catholics necessarily. A lot of these people are Protestants. Um, some of them are Anglicans. Some of them are Protestants. Some of them are Puritans, which is a, a type of reformed Calvinism. Um, one such person was William Wake. Wake was an Anglican. He was, I believe, the Archbishop of Canterbury from 1716 until his death in 1737. And he had written a pamphlet that was published, I believe this is 1687. And he really sees purgatory as having kind of a pagan origin. And so he sees the origins of purgatory in ancient Greece and Rome, especially in Virgil, Homer, and Plato. Um, 
he sees then purgatory as a sort of an icon worship, a worship of ancestors, as you might be praying to release someone from hell, probably one of your ancestors. And this is his argument in his, his pamphlet. Um, he connects this instinct to kind of free your ancestors to some of the early church fathers, especially uh, Origen, if anybody knows him, he was a, a, an early church father, I think third century AD. Um, and Wake thinks that Origen was kind of taking from ancient Greece and Rome this idea that you could pray people out of hell. He sees this in St. Augustine, who, according to Wake, conceived of purgatory as not something that was, that was viewed in the same way uh, Catholics view purgatory, but rather as something that occurs at the end of time, that purgation would occur when time ends, that's not sort of actively going on with the world. And so he wants to kind of do a, a revisionist history, Wake does, of St. Augustine. He sees, Wake sees, that purgatory was inverted in the 12th century, in which Gregory the Great, who was Pope back then, um, established purgatory as a place in hell that can be escaped. For Wake and other Anglican high churchmen, purgatory was not something that existed. Uh, he says scripture does not leave ground for such a thing. And he rejects this idea that people can get out of hell, that when once God damns you to hell, damned you are. And that the, the ancestor worship that he calls purgatory will not free you. And he sees in origin... Uh, a belief that souls can be saved by fire, and this is something Wake rejects entirely. And so those are the major Catholic Christian beliefs in purgatory, or lack of belief in purgatory, and the divide thereof. Now I want to start moving east, touching on a, a few different religions, and I'm going to start with Islam. I'm not going to spend a lot of time here, uh, since I want to get to uh, Hinduism, Shinto, and Buddhism. Um, but there is a, a concept of something like purgatory in Islam. Now this is from, I'm taking this from the Encyclopedia of Death and the Human Experience. And this is what they say vis-a-vis -vis Islam. Um, death is a day of judgment and a transition to the eternal world. The physical or material aspect of it will return to earth buried in the grave, in the, the body. But the spiritual aspect will return to the creator. The day of judgment is the day when all deeds would be weighed. The sinful will have to pay for their sin, kind of purgation or purification. For some people, people would sin. Some people, excuse me, some people who have sin won't have enough sin to be damned. Um, those people go to an in-between space. In the Quran, we call this space the Araf. This is a, a place similar to purgatory. The Araf is like a great curtain between heaven and hell. And people who come here can see both the joys of heaven and the horrors of hell. And this is opposed to people living in one or the other, right? People who are experiencing entirely hell, people experiencing entirely heaven. And so people who occupy this curtain space can sort of 
experience both, or maybe even we could think of it as they are being forced to experience both. Um, sometimes this space is referred to as Barzakh. I, I don't know if I'm saying this right, but Barzakh is often seen as a, a place more like limbo, a place between death and resurrection, where the soul separates from the body, that initial space, soul separates from body, body goes back to the ground. Um, and so there might be a difference between Barzakh and Araf. Um, I'm not entirely sure. There seems to be some disagreement there, but that seems to be what I found as being most similar to purgatory in the Muslim culture. Now, moving on to Buddhism and this concept of Naraka. So Buddhism has no concept of hell as a place of eternal punishment. Um, you know, that that's more of a Western thing. However, Buddhists believe in karma, this sort of um, good or bad energy built up depending on your actions in life. And the accumulation of bad karma can lead to rebirth in one of a number of hells. Uh, and you could see this in, in kind of Buddhist art sometimes is, is a, a type of hell that bad karma can lead you to is, is depicted in this art. Um, they have a variety of hells, hot hells, cold hells, many subdivisions in which different evildoers are tormented by demons and the demons then torture them until the bad karma has run its course. And then they could be reborn into a better state. I think it's called Avici or Avici is the deepest of all hells, A-V-I-C-I. Right now, I'm going to take a long quote from the Dictionary of Buddhism, talking about, uh, about hells and, and things like that. So here is um, an extended quote from that dictionary. Quote, In more than 5,000 years of history, Hinduism has developed more hells than any other culture on earth. Not only are the number and types of hells carefully inventoried and elaborated, although different native sources are wildly contradictory in this regard, but also the exact descriptions of which sins leads to which hell and for how long give evidence of a philosophy of ethical retribution that long predates that of every other known society. Even the most ancient Hindu scriptures, the Vedas, which are from between 4,000 and 2,000 BC, there is a clear teaching that those who commit evil will be punished in the afterlife, and this belief continues to have a strong hold over the followers of all Indian religions today. To be sure, concepts of the afterlife, and particularly of Naraka, or hell, have evolved over the centuries, and opinions differ as to whether the hells are literal, even physical locations, or perhaps... Uh, penitential, but psychological and spiritual states of being. But the essential ethical aspect of this philosophy has remained constant throughout. Most traditional scholars in the West have insisted that early scriptures like the Vedas do not have a developed philosophy of karma or reincarnation, but some verses suggest the opposite, and he suggests a few opposites. Um, this is from the Rig Veda, and here's a quote within the quote. The sun receives your eye, the wind your spirit. Go as your merit is, to earth or heaven. Go, if it is your lot, unto waters. 
go, make your home in plants with all your members, end quote. This verse agrees with worldwide conceptions of a multi-part soul, each segment of which departs to different states after death. Thus, given the Vedic understanding of ethics, afterlife, and soul, when later texts discuss the hells as punishment for specific sins, they're not so much inventing a new idea, but fleshing out what existed from the very beginning of Indian thought. This fleshing out was prodigious. By the time of the Puranas, they were written between 300 and 600 AD, the number of heavens and hells enumerated and uh, multiplied dramatically with at least seven heavens above the earth, seven nether, nether regions below the earth, seven, 14, 21, 28, or more hells, Narakas, placed even below the nether regions. The hells are carefully distinguished from talas, nether regions, and that the hells are specific places of suffering for beings who have committed sins in past lives, whereas the talas are simply underworlds that are natural home to various races of being. Although the Puranas state that their information was gained by direct spiritual vision on the part of great saints, the clever suitability of suffering paired to specific crimes and graphic descriptions suggests great literary embellishment. For instance, the Agni Purana enumerates 144 hells and gives copious examples of different punishments and whatnot. One example he gives is uh, a man who has eaten sweets by himself without sharing it for others is doomed to a hell where he must eat excrement and the parasites then infest his excrement while being fed on by crows. <laughs> so, you know, that's fun. Um, going back to the, the article, quote, the time spent in such hells varies from as little as 100,000 years to a length of time called a kalpa. A kalpa is a great age of the universe, the period of time it would take to wear down the Himalayas to sea level. If, once each century, one were to take a silk scarf and lightly brush their peaks. In short, some sinners not even think of ever getting out of hell, although in theory, all existence is temporary and rebirth is inevitable for gods as well as sinners. Okay, and so we could see there that the idea in this kind of Hindu belief is a combination of hell and purgatory. Now, you know, that the the hell can last an incredibly long time, you know, the, the wearing down of the Himalayas by a silk scarf, but eventually there is kind of a freedom from it. Part of this seems to be inflected by the fact that there is no official head of Hinduism who is declaring this or that to be true. That is much more of an emergent religion with different sects, different types of believers, and different regions of the world. You can see this in, in opposition to Catholicism, which really does have a standard, a single standard, that is fortified by canon law. Okay, moving on now to Shinto religion. Um, I'm going to take a look at an article on Shinto from the Encyclopedia of Death and the Human Experience. And yes, there is something called the Encyclopedia of Death and the Human Experience. Uh, and this mentions the idea that um, Shintoism and Buddhism are 
deeply intertwined. And it, it starts by referencing this phrase, born Shinto, die Buddhist, uh, which they see as a good sum up of the relationship between religion and life cycle in Japan. And there's a, a reason for this kind of division of labors or this split between Shintoism and Buddhism. And the article gives them as number one, Buddhist priests in Japan, as elsewhere in Asia, came to dominate the performance of death rites because their faith provided a highly articulated explanation of the afterlife and specific procedures to navigate it. So that was one reason. The second reason is that Japanese, the Japanese people have long believed the native deities worshipped as at Shinto shrines, the, the, they call these people kami, take the form of natural objects um, and abhor the pollution generated by death. And so this belief in kind of ancestor worship as well as uh, and the problems of um, purification as related to that, you know, touching the dead, dealing with the dead, that this is a form of pollution, that in combination with the articulation of death and what happens after death as established in Buddhist practices kind of pushes death rituals towards Buddhist priests and, and Buddhist practicers so that um, you're seeing Shinto people who kind of back away from it and Buddhists who have a vocabulary that prepares them for, for kind of death rites. Um, however, Shinto does use an important creation myth uh, this is concerning, and I'm going to really have trouble with these names here, but the, the main Shinto creation myth concerns Izignagi and Izanami. Um, and these are the, the male and female kami, kind of original souls or ancestor souls, who created the island of Japan. When the, the male kami, Izanami, dies, or excuse me, when the female kami, Izanami, dies, She's confined to Yomi. This is the kind of the underworld. Um, and so this is where we introduce this idea of the underworld in Shinto, which is this place called Yomi. The underworld, however, and how um, Japanese Shinto practices depicted it, underwent a radical change after the Meiji Restoration of 1680, excuse me, 1868. Now, what, they, what that restoration was is when um, samurai, a few samurai, overthrew the last shogun ruler in favor of an emperor. So Japan had been ruled by um, a shogunate, you know, these kind of uh, uh, feudal lords, and he was overthrown. They established an emperor. And at this point, Shintoism and Buddhism practices begin to be separated out. Buddhism is seen as kind of a, a Chinese phenomenon. There's a lot of nationalist energy that comes with the, the restoration of the emperor. And Shintoism is kind of seen as, a, as the Japanese cultural religion. And so Buddhism is pushed aside. Um, and so what ends up happening is before this period, Buddhists take care of the funerals, the death rites. After this period, especially in 1872, when there was a decree that said as much, all funerals needed to be overseen by a Shinto priest. So that again is 1872, funerals have to be overseen by a Shinto priest. 
This begins to create a problem for determining the nature of the afterlife. As we knew before, Buddhists had a better articulation of the afterlife than, than Shinto practicers. So the division of labor left Buddhists in charge of articulating that. Now we have a problem because there now has to be a, a more in-depth articulation of the afterlife for Shinto followers. Um, and so many preserved the old traditions in Shinto, which were kind of, there was an afterlife, but it was sort of a dark place. It wasn't a hell necessarily. It wasn't a, a purgatory to get into heaven, but a sort of in-between space where you wandered in the dark, sort of blind. Um, and the, the visual of who is wandering in the dark, right? What, what the dead look like. The dead, the people wandering in the dark look like the dead. So you start to see that problem there. And uh, different people at that period, different Shinto believers, start to articulate an afterlife, a sort of in-between space that's actually more hospitable. Now, moving on to Buddhism, um, KJ, in our, our nine-minute B-side, brought this up in the podcast. Um, and KJ said something along the lines of suffering in Buddhism is the cause of all problems in the world of all pain and therefore leaving behind this life would be like leaving behind suffering he sees this as kind of what the movie afterlife is doing i think this would represent a, a third way between purgatory and limbo um, it's another means of understanding the way this world is building the, the way this film is building its world that there is a recognition of life as being filled with suffering, and therefore these characters who die are able to take with them only the kind of the good, right? A good memory, a positive memory, and separate themselves out from suffering. I think it's a fine reading of the film. Um, so now again, I want to read the entry on kind of Buddhism and death from the Encyclopedia of Death and the Human Experience. Quote, Contemplation on the inevitability of death is a reminder of the fleeting nature of life and the limited time we each have left for achieving liberation from the perpetual cycles of death and rebirth. It serves as an incentive to renounce frivolous worldly activities and strive to cultivate wholesome actions of body, speech, and mind. Reflecting on the reality that death is inescapable impels us to pay close attention to things as they really are and not get lulled into destructive, escapist, or meaningless activities. Coupled with an understanding of karma, actions, the law of cause and effect, and rebirth, reflection on death engenders insight into the illusory, transient nature of sense pleasures. Recollecting that death is certain but the time of death is uncertain, became a general theme of Buddhist meditation, end quote. The kind of focus on death and uh, separating yourself out from the worldly is very important. Uh, however, part of separating yourself out from the worldly is a recognition of samsara. That's the cycle of death and rebirth. Um, and Therefore, there's kind of an acknowledgement of uh, an intermediate state. And different Buddhist traditions focus on this intermediate state in different ways. 
Some Buddhists of the Zen tradition believe that rebirth occurs immediately after death, while those of the Tibetan tradition say there's an interval. They call the immediate state, uh, excuse me, the, they call the intermediate state, that is the Tibetan Buddhists call the intermediate state bardo. So in the Tibetan Book of the Death, an incipient being, so this is a being who hasn't necessarily taken physical form yet, has the opportunity to assume a new form every seven days. And at the end of 49 days, not taking a new form, it descends into a new state of existence. So it'll go into a kind of a lower state. So for people or souls entering Bardo, um, who are prepared and ready for death, so we can imagine that the conscious being who's entering Bardo is either prepared for death, has been attempting to separate himself or herself from worldly goods, by focusing on death or is not prepared and has been um, concerned with the worldly. So for those people entering Bardo who are prepared and ready for death, Bardo is a time for great liberation. But for others, people with bad karma, um, Bardo, this kind of middle period, is a time of hallucination and creates a sense of danger. Uh, this, this danger, this feeling of being threatened results in a bad rebirth as, as being reborn into something lower. And so this, this state, this bardo, um, some people believe it was brought into Buddhism from the Vedic Upshanak philosophical tradition, that, that tradition which later developed into Hinduism. Um, but, you know, we're, I'm not entirely sure. But anyway, going back to the, the bardos anyway, there appears to be six bardos uh, in Buddhist belief. Um, I'm not going to cover all of them here, um, but they do include that birth-to-death life. So in one ways, life itself is sort of an intermediate stage before another life. Now, the thing that's closest to purgatory in the topic of this conversation seems to come up with the fifth bardo, which is called Chosnid bardo. And this occurs after the final inner breath. So final death, and it results in um, the the soul experiencing visual and auditory phenomena that are occupied by a sense of profound peace. So it'd see these, these kind of amazing things and feel a sense of absolute peace. Um, however, in the fifth bardo, people who have bad karma do not experience a sense of peace and they just kind of see the, these hallucinations. The final bardo, the sixth bardo, uh, Sridpa Bardo, I hope I said that correctly, is a process of transmigration. And that lasts until the inner breath, that's kind of the, the soul or the essence or something like that, um, that lasts until that breath finds a new form. Okay? Um, and so that also becomes a sort of in-between stage if we want to see that as... A limbo or purgatory or whatever, it's an in-between stage in which a soul can, can find a new place in between life and death. And so in conclusion, after looking at all of these religious practices, it's not entirely clear to me um, if Nick or if I am right or wrong. 
it seems that the idea of purgatory in our, our Western context is connected to punishment. That's a big part of the Reformation, right, is recognizing that purgatory is punishment. I mean, why else would you pay for people to get out of it? And therefore, the afterlife world, the, what we call in that podcast the DMV or way station world for the dead in the film Afterlife would not be exactly purgatory in that sense. It wouldn't be in a, a Catholic sense. Um, however, when we go east and see, I think, with the the Buddhist tradition, it it doesn't exactly fit there either. I think the vision in Afterlife is unique. It, it doesn't comfortably fit into any of these ideas of purgatory. However, in Hinduism and in Buddhism and in latter Shintoism, in late 19th and 20th century Shintoism, we see this after space the, the, as not necessarily being one of pain, right? It's, it's one of maybe experience, um, and it's predicated upon your, your bad or good karma. This is not necessarily different from the, the Dantean mountain, right? Because how much time you spend on a level in the purgatorial mountain in Dante is predicated upon your deeds in the world. This isn't that different from karma, in which your experience in, in these kind of bardo states are predicated upon how much good or bad karma you're taking with yourself into this in-between realm. Um, however, it isn't necessarily true in, in Eastern religions or the Eastern religions we've surveyed here that it is necessarily a place of purging or even a place of um, purification in the Catholic sense. Then, in fact, a peaceful, um, pleasant experience of your past, of your history, might not be entirely inconsistent with any of these traditions. It's not entirely an embodiment of any of these traditions, but my belief that, I, or what I had argued on that short B-side podcast, that it, this wasn't purgatory at all, I, I think isn't entirely true that there are versions of in-betweenness that are more consistent with the afterlife worldview than the purgatorial worldview that Catholics have here in the West. All right, thank you very much for your time. This has been B-Side.